jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, my very special guest is Gary Vitaco Robles, who is a Marilyn Monroe expert and has written three books about the icon. Welcome, Gary. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Laura. It's so great to meet you after I just devoured your book, Cursum Perficio, which is about Marilyn and really concentrates on her home in Brentwood, where she lived for only six months and unfortunately passed away there in August 1962. So we can look upon our talk today as kind of honoring her memory on the 60th anniversary of her death. Indeed. Thank you. I really loved the book. I'm a big history buff and I love research, but what I got from reading your book is that just the meticulous research you put into it, the you know, the loving detail that you offered to readers, you know, such as myself, who didn't really know a lot about Marilyn's life. I mean, I knew the vast common knowledge and and myth about the woman, but I really felt like I knew her so much better after I read your book. And um, as this podcast concentrates on architecture, we're certainly going to get into that with the house. But initially, I just wanted to ask you, what kind of drove you to this area of study in your life? Well, personally, I'm a psychotherapist, but I was an originally an architecture major and I love history. So, and I love classic cinema. So Monroe blended with architecture and history all came together for me. And so I, I didn't want to initially tackle a full length biography. So I thought that I might focus on a period of her life that was kind of a metaphor. You know, the home was under renovation and not quite completed when she died. And since she died so young, her life is in many ways incomplete. So I thought I would just tell her story within the context of that home. But then the book became a dress rehearsal for Uh, another decade of research, and then uh, a two-volume biography. But it was a nice way to begin and to uh, talk about the woman behind the icon. And, you know, uh, your selection of a home and how you decorate it is often a reflection of who you are in your soul. And given Monroe's traumatic childhood and her uh, uh, nomadic lifestyle, You know, psychologically, the home represents so much more, her trying to stabilize herself and to ground her life. Um, So it's just a wonderful way to provide context for her life within this brief time period of about six months. Right. The uh, impetus for the title of the book, Cursum Perficio, these were tiles that were at the entrance of the house before she ever moved there. And the Latin definition is my journey ends which is so sadly poignant and pretty amazing that the house that she chose just happened to have these tiles already you know installed there 
it's prophetic, definitely, you know, retrospectively, when we think that this is the home in which she died. Um, but it, it seems that Monroe found um, great comfort in that inscription um, because she was laying down roots and um, her, her journey, you know, the, the true translation, my journey ends here, it also roughly translates to I've completed the course, I've, I've run the race. And so um, this was uh, a fortress against uh, the harsh realities of the world for her. She felt protected in this home um, and she was trying to build a new life in it. And of course, since she died in the home, we have uh, projected onto those tiles other, other meanings. But I understand from Southern California architecture that that this inscription is not all that unusual. It's like um, like, a, like a welcome sign or uh, a symbol of a pineapple for welcoming. But for, for Monroe, it, it um, represents so much more. I think Enya even titled one of her songs after these tiles and as they apply to Marilyn's life. Right. Wow. Very prophetic indeed. Um, and yeah, I get the feeling from from what you've written that she loved this property because it was kind of tucked away. It had a, a real degree of privacy. She could feel that it was the safe haven that she was looking for. And also one thing you point out when she was at the, the escrow signing, she actually kind of excused herself and went off to, to cry because she never thought that she would be purchasing a home on her own like that. But um, you know, which is sad in itself. But what I took from that is how great it was that this single woman could purchase a home on her own because that was very unusual. Women weren't granted solo mortgages in the early 60s like that. I think that wasn't commonplace probably until much later in the 70s, actually. That's an interesting point. Um, and, you know, Monroe was born and raised in Los Angeles, and that's where she, of course, began her career. But the reality is this home was, uh, was not her primary residence. Monroe had been a resident of New York City since 1955. She spent the last seven years of her life in Manhattan um, uh, studying at the Actors Studio with Lee Strasberg. Then she married Arthur Miller. And her primary residence at the time of her death was the co-op at 444 East uh, 57th Street in Manhattan. This is where she filed her taxes. And this is where she kept uh, her most personal possessions. And so what drove Monroe back to Los Angeles, a place she really preferred not to be, was really her career beckoning her. Um, she had uh, last performed for her home studio, 20th Century Fox, uh, in Let, Let's Make Love in 1960. And she still owed two films to satisfy her contract with Fox that she had renegotiated in 56. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when I think of Monroe, I think of her as a New York resident in that New York apartment. Um, but this was just, this was just a, a stable place to complete films it was a secondary residence, right. uh, but unfortunately she, her life ended there. Right. And even though, as you're saying, it was a secondary residence, she was putting a lot of effort into the remodeling of it and renovating certain parts of the home and the guest house to make it welcoming for her friends. And she definitely was living that 
that Southern California, Los Angeles lifestyle, even though perhaps at heart, she was, you know, really more involved in her East Coast environs. And, and the, the journey that brings her to the house is really a very interesting one because um, the house was actually prescribed by her psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. Right. Yes. I do want to get into that with you because he seemed to be a really boundary breaking type psychiatrist. And it seems to me he influenced her decision to purchase a home in his neighborhood and to kind of you know, influence her desire to have a home that was built in that same hacienda style. Yes. And, and so um, Monroe was actually renting uh, an apartment at 882 Doheny Drive on the border of Beverly Hills and um, West Hollywood. And she had lived there in 53. And so when she came back to Los Angeles in August of 1961, um, she was living in what she described as kind of a uh, a, de- a depressive uh, environment. And so she had taken up uh, psychoanalysis with Greenson. She had been working with Marianne Chris in New York. But in early 1961, after her divorce from Arthur Miller, she had a major depressive episode and she was hospitalized at Payne Whitney Clinic and then Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in their psychiatric units. And she was there for about a month and she did not work for the entire rest of the calendar year in 1961. So when she went to Los Angeles, she resumed treatment with Greenson who had been treating her when she went into crisis on films beginning in 1960. And so she suffered yet another major depressive episode in the fall of 1961. And so at that time, Monroe was actually shopping for a three-story townhouse in Manhattan. And there's some correspondence that, that uh, since I've written the book, um, I've come across, thanks to um, Scott Fortner, who's a collector. So she was looking at renovating this three-story townhouse, and he prescribed um, uh, a home in Los Angeles that would be more permanent. Monroe, I think, said in an interview around the time she purchased the home that she said, I have this great superstructure, but don't have a foundation. And I'm, I'm really working on the foundation. And so she uh, shopped for this home and she wanted to recreate the home of Ralph and Hilda Greenson. Mm-hmm. And this is where you speak of the controversial treatment methods that Greenson employed. So um, Monroe's psychiatric issues presented quite a challenge to Greenson. And so at the recommendation of his um, colleague, Dr. Milton Wexler, he recommended that Greenson begin reparenting Marilyn and introduce her to his wife and his adult children who lived with him as a way to to give her an environment of a healthy family, which had evaded her. So we, we know Monroe's history, you know, her mother suffered from extreme mental illness. Her father denied paternity. Right. Um, she was in and out of many different placements where she was physically abused and sexually abused. She lived in an orphanage for many years. And so, you know, she had many adverse childhood experiences. And so this controversial method of introducing the patient into the home, interacting with the family, having sessions in the family house, and then after the session, joining the family for dinner, washing dishes. So this began to, um, you know, this was her warm Jewish family. And she became friends with the, with the adult children who were in college at the time. 
Um, she was, uh, Dan Greenson talks about kissing her on the cheek while she's peeling potatoes in his mother's kitchen and um, washing the dishes. And so she wanted to recreate this environment. And this was a, this, this home was a two-story Monterey style uh, home with cantilevered balcony in, in Santa Monica on Franklin street. Have you seen pictures of it? I have not. It's really, yeah, I, it's a great house. Those aren't in the book, right? No, no, they're not, but you could, you can Google them. I invite people to okay. Google them because you'll see uh, when it went for, when Hilda died at 99, a few years ago, the house went for sale. And so we can see the images of the interior, especially the kitchen. And if you look at images of Monroe's kitchen in 62, that remodel, the blue and yellow tiles and the, the copper range hood and the, um, the copper pans suspended from that range hood. This was indeed a recreation of Greenson's home, but on a much smaller scale. Yeah. The cathedral ceilings, the hand-honed beams, um, and so this, this is what Monroe wanted to, to recreate. And so when she found the home, it was a great example of um, Spanish colonial architecture. But over the years, they had modified it in it. And the baths in the kitchen were more contemporary. And so right. Monroe wanted right. to return to the original motif of the home, hand-painted tiles, um, traveling to Mexico to obtain textiles and custom furniture and designs and decorative items to really make it uh, authentic. She, this was like a, a, a passion, you know, to do this right. It was a great creative um, project for her. Mm-hmm. Well, I can really appreciate your professional perspective of this, you know, as a licensed mental health counselor that you know, you can give it a layer of professionalism that um, obviously was absent back in the early 60s, but, you know, you can kind of lay it out in a way that's easy to to understand and digest. You know, I can see how you just bring your professional life and your artistic creativity together. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate all the work and the research that you put into it, Gary, it's just um, been fascinating to learn. So we should get into actually how she found the home because um, of Eunice Murray was actually the woman who, who found it and brought Marilyn there to see it for the first time. And um, we can get into, you know, again, some of this kind of boundary shattering uh, treatment that Marilyn was receiving from Greenson was that Eunice Murray was the woman who sold Greenson her house, you know, the Franklin house. And then he had her installed as Marilyn's housekeeper. And to me, that's just, you know, reading this in your book, it's just all sorts of red flags. Blurred boundaries all over, right? Definitely. And Monroe, given given her history of trauma and her issues, um, she was a high-risk patient, really. you know, she required boundaries. And I think their intentions were good, but unfortunately they were inadvertently uh, doing everything opposite of what she really needed. And I think even the doctor's needs uh, began to come before hers. So Eunice Murray is an interesting figure in Monroe's life and how she plays into it. Like her assistance in helping Marilyn find and renovate and decorate the house is also a personal corrective experience for her. 
So, you know, she built the home with her husband and in, in Santa Monica, she, mm-hmm. she hand selected those um, hand painted tiles. Um, but, uh, that, that marriage ended and she had to give up the home within a short period of time. So she sold the house to the Greensons and then remained connected to her, her former house through uh, the continuance of a relationship with the buyers. And so right. Monroe's life, um, required a lot of external structuring and caretaking and, uh, coming out of those depressive episodes, Greenson recommended that he hire Eunice Murray as a caregiver, really. She didn't have a title. Uh, after her death, she was referred to as the housekeeper, but she was really right. a caretaker to um, attend to Monroe's you know, daily activities. And so uh, she finds the home and then makes arrangements for Monroe uh, to, to visit it after hours um, so that her public image would, would um, be protected. And so it's, it's, an, it's an interesting home. It's, um, it was built in 1929. And at the time right. I wrote the book, I didn't know the, uh, the, the original owners, but um, Richard and Martha Hunter had purchased the home or had built it in 1929. And um, a few years ago, the 1930 census was released. And so I was able to learn that they lived in the home with their two adult sons and um, a housekeeper and a butler in, in the guest house. And so mm-hmm. the, um, the occupation of the sons are um, ar- architects. So my suspicion is that one of them or both of them likely designed the home. And um, Richard Hunter was a motion picture cameraman who later became an actor. And he actually died in 1962 when, when Monroe died. And one of his sons had, had died the year before. And so this young couple with children had um, sold the home to Monroe. She paid about fifty-seven five, I think, for it, and it recently sold for about seven million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it's um, it was closer to seventy-seven thousand because she put about half of that down and then mortgaged the other half. But yes, I did research the updated value of that. I think it's like eight point eight. Uh, million is what it would be sold for today. And if you wanted to lease it, that's like a $30,000 a month um, tab. And unfortunately that, that neighborhood, you know, there are many buyers are building, are are purchasing the older homes built in the twenties and the thirties, and they're demolishing them and they're, they're building these very, very large homes. So Monroe's home is now kind of surrounded by the development around it. It's kind of like her, her, her crypt. You know, that that large area, that financial center that's built up around her over the decades. Right. It's such an interesting neighborhood. I mean, going back to, you know, apparently it was in the early 1920s, this part of Los Angeles, Brentwood was being built up, developed. The homes were kind of away from it all and considered suburban. But I couldn't really find any information on the the streets like Maryland Street is called Fifth Helena, and the reason for that is because there are nineteen streets that are call, all called Helena, but they're numbered one to nineteen, and it's such an unusual and unique way to develop. I mean, I I've not come across that before, and unfortunately for you know a, the few hours I put in trying to determine whose idea was that? Why did they develop it like that? I just, I wasn't able to come up with anything, but I'm still 
you know, I'm still on the hunt to Yeah, and neither have neither out. have I, but it's uh it's bordered by the north by Sunset and south by San Vicente and and they're known right. locally as the numbered Helenas. All the streets named Helena. And a few blocks over, not 19, but there's the numbered Anitas too. So this was a pattern that was repeated, you know, at least once. And it just is so interesting to me off of Carmelina to have these 19 cul-de-sacs. And, you know, I can understand why that would be desired, you know, because of the privacy and, and just kind of the way you, you pull in in your home and you don't have a lot of neighbors on your street. But it was, it was perfect for Monroe, right? It, it's, it's walled mm -hmm. and fifth Helena drive is just a very short cul-de-sac. And there are really only two houses on the street, Monroe's and the house next to it. Okay. And um, the only other homes are the two on either corner, but they actually face Carmelina. And so Monroe mm -hmm. liked that, that privacy. She had all of the neighbors um, uh, investigated. I know that the, the Landau's live there, the, the Barnes and the Patterson's um, were the houses around around her. Um, and so they have all sold in, in recent years. I, I know the one house on the corner, the Landau house is under development now. And I think the um, Barnes house recently sold. So we'll see if that's developed into another structure. Right. But it, it did provide the, the privacy for her, the, the wall and, and, the, and the gate. Um, the gate was scalloped um, for many years, the wooden gate that Monroe actually installed. And I think in 1984, when the Olympics was coming to Los Angeles, the owner of the home removed the scallop gates because they were so recognizable. And all that footage from Monroe's death that um, our steel replacement uh, was there and mm -hmm. has remained ever since. But you, you can't get a, a true appreciation for the property by by looking at it through the the vantage point of the cul-de-sac because it's it's um it's a huge piece of property one of the largest in the area that kind of drops in terraces uh, behind with great views of the the valley below and over the years additional structures have been built on the property mm -hmm. you know a lot of folks are interested in it becoming a museum but this is a neighborhood it's residential and the the um, the fans who flock to this residence on a, a continuous basis, you know, create a, a lot of disruption um, on the streets and for the people who are living there. And so it, it is not zoned ever to be um, a museum. And um, I, I guess the surrounding neighbors have come to accept that this is just the way it's going to be. But at least uh, the more recent owners of the home have made some structural changes to um, provide further privacy for them. So now there's another gate cut in the wall as an entrance to the house and the large gate that opened up onto the driveway um, is now, um, it, you know, when it opens, it provides a way for you to kind of see into the property. So there's lush bamboo that's planted there now to, um, camouflage the home wow. if it's deemed a historic uh structure there would be some protections that come with that right well i checked it out on um the la conservancy would really be the um you know like the entity that would begin pursuing that and i i did not see that there's even a 
you know, like an application or any kind of footwork towards that landmark status, mm. which surprised me. Yeah, it, it did surprise me because it would keep it, you know, in perpetuity from being demolished. Yes. So, yeah, I don't know if it's just kind of we take it on um, the honor system that whoever ends up purchasing the property would, you know, respect it enough to to kind of keep it intact and and not want to tear it down. But yeah, without landmark protection, you really don't have that um, guarantee. So I was very surprised. Well, I hope this podcast inspires someone to consider that and to take the necessary steps so that it does survive. Right. Yeah. I mean, just a very important place and a place of fascination for the generations that have come after. Um, well, I wanted to get into, in the book, you so lovingly provide 122 pages of illustrations that were done by... Brandon Heydrich. Uh, Brandon Heydrich, yes. And really just a lot of work and creativity put into this because I can see that through... Um, they look like CAD drawings, computer-assisted yes. yes. drawing, that he... Uh, recreated each room and um, probably, you know, to scale. And so that we can actually see what they looked like. And then he has a version of it that's kind of staged with furniture. And, um, you know, of course, other photographs of furniture and these amazing um, tiles that she purchased in Mexico and lighting design elements. And it's just, you know, for anyone who's a fan or, or even just intrigued by the history of this woman it's just such a great gift that you provide in this in this book because it really kind of allows us uh you know a way in to see this in such great detail so thank you for providing all that and i love the the anecdote that you provided about Eunice kind of she accompanied Marilyn to Mexico to source out a lot of the furniture mm -hmm. and and these items and that you know it must have been kind of cathartic for her too because you know reminiscent of the house that she ended up having to to give up when the Greasons bought it so I really I like that and, that, and the, that whole trip to Mexico was was uh, a story unto itself because um Monroe visited um, Fred Vanderbilt Fields and his wife mm -hmm. Nieves and, um, and also met with William Spratling. And William Spratling had um, a, a silversmith shop and um, he was an expatriate in, in Mexico along with other communistic leaning Americans. Vanderbilt Fields was part of the Vanderbilt family. However, he was a uh, uh, very liberal and believed in unions. And so um, Monroe is connected to a lot of uh, left-leaning individuals and they had a community in Mexico. And so um, Monroe connected with them and uh, they, were the, they were the individuals who went with her in, on caravan into the little villages to um, obtain all of these authentic textiles and tiles and furnishings, which now all had to be custom designed for her. So there's like coffee tables with a scalloped wooden pattern with um, leather kind of stretched across for the surface and um, bolted on the sides with decorative tacks. Um, the octagon 
a based round table with the matching scallops. So uh, as Monroe was renovating the home, um, the furniture was under production and then being shipped to her. So most everything had arrived, but not all of it had arrived. There were many delays. And so um, some of the furnishings actually remained in wrap in the guest house. Um, and the house was uh, structurally complete, um, but not completely furnished. Interesting paintings, too. There's a beautiful painting yes, of uh, the Adobe at night with one of the windows illuminated. And when you kind of watch the documentaries of Monroe um, and they... They have images of the house with her bedroom window on. She died, you know, the wind, uh, the light was on and that was the signal that maybe there was something wrong in her room. And, and even that painting, um, which she hung in her living room, actually looks like the house on Fifth Helena Drive with the illuminated one window um, in the darkness. And uh, That is so interesting, Ralph. Um, well, Gary, I'm wondering if it's possible for you to choose your top five elements from the house, either furnishings or pieces of art or. Mm. Um, well, I, I, I love Marilyn's Norman Norell uh, red sofa. Um, it's very dear to me because uh, a, a dear friend of mine in California owns the couch right now and it's upholstered in uh, gold velvet and, and Marilyn had it uh, upholstered in red. And it actually remained in the guest house, uh, still wrapped up at the time of her death. And the Nunez family who purchased the home from Monroe's estate uh, also purchased that, that sofa. And so I will be seeing my friend uh, in August for the 60th anniversary of Monroe's death. And I plan to sit on that sofa and I will think of you, Laura, as, as I do so. He also owns her her chrome hot point refrigerator, which was so modern for 1962. It has the French doors and the bottom freezer. And um, what I love about it is, is one side of it was exposed in Monroe's kitchen remodel. And so she had it, that side painted blue to match the blue and yellow tiles in her kitchen. So her special touch still remains on that refrigerator. So uh, I plan to raid that refrigerator at night um, as well. And Greg also owns um, the tea table that was in her sunroom, and I believe one of the settees. Um, and uh, you know, an another um, detail is the swan ashtray, which was found on a on a table in the sunroom, which was photographed at the time of Monroe's death. So it's kind of an iconic image. Um, and she had wonderful paintings as well. There's, there's a, a red painting of a bull from Mexico. And then there's a female nude um, from Mexico and also um, a painting by Nova of thistles that was in the dining room. And these wonderful um, Mexican musicians, they were wired sculptures that were in the sunroom mounted on the wall. And they're kind of cartoon-like of uh, Mexican musicians wearing sombreros and they all have their instruments and they all went, I saw many of these things that went to auction at Christie's in 1999. So it was wonderful to kind of walk through almost like a, it was like a museum exhibit right. to see all of Monroe's um, personal items, her clothing, and many of the pieces from her New York apartment and the Brentwood Hacienda. 
Wow. Oh, how beautiful. I'm so glad that you got to see them up close. And thank you so much for sharing those favorites with us. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Well, Gary, it's just been fascinating talking with you so much about this book that I I really enjoyed and learned a lot from, Cursum Proficio. But um, if you could talk about the trilogy that you've written also, I know the third book in the trilogy is anticipated next month. So if you could just kind of let us know what the titles are, where we can find them. Yes, after uh, Cursum Proficio, I wrote um, volumes one and two of Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. And those books are available on Amazon.com and they're published by Bear Manor Media, uh, bearmanormedia.com. And the third in the Icon trilogy is The Death Investigation. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And um, I did want to just put it out there. Is there a website that you'd like to let the listeners know about? I I could certainly promote your 36 episode podcast, which is running on Audible. I found that quite fascinating. And um, yeah, I would just like to give you the opportunity to talk about if you have any live events coming up or book signing. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. So right now I'm co-producing a film by a very talented young director, Rami Gangarosa, and it's called Maryland's Dark Paradise. It's about a 30 minute short film, which is releasing in the fall for a two year film festival run. It's uh, has no dialogue, but um, if, if you enjoy the meticulous detail of my writing, definitely this film is in meticulous detail um, to Monroe's life. And you will see visually uh, images come alive that you've seen in photographs and, 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 and in film. And it's really a beautiful story that, that um, really focuses on Monroe's resilience. And so um, Marilyn Behind the Icon is my podcast, which is an adaptation of the soon-to-be three-volume icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. So these are dramatic adaptations um, of the book um, in in episodes that kind of bounce back and forth uh, through time in the way that This Is Us kind of does that or did that. Um, and then we have uh, a companion um, podcast where we break down each uh, episode. So that's been very, very uh, exciting to do. Um, and my podcast is Marilyn Behind the Icon, which you can find at behindtheicon.com. And you can watch the trailer for the film Marilyn's Dark Paradise on YouTube. Wow. Well- so interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. And yes, I would, I would encourage anyone listening to, um, to check out your books and, and the podcast. It's just a, a really eye-opening way of, of kind of learning about Marilyn's in, incredible life and, you know, kind of following along the highs and the lows with her and learning all about that. And of course, you know, from this podcast perspective, the incredible architectural story that went along with her, her home in Brentwood and just, just fascinating. So I I thank you so much for your time today. 
Gary. It was my genuine pleasure. I'm quite honored to be here. And I feel like I feel like there's more conversations between us. I I agree with you on that. And um, I'm going to suggest a part two because I don't think that we we covered nearly half of of what I would have liked to talk we, to. You we about. didn't even so, get into Monroe and Frank Lloyd Wright, which is another really wonderful story. That's yeah. true. Yes. No, I did want to bring that up because of course in Brentwood, one of Frank Lloyd writes amazing projects the Sturgis house mm, it yes. lives there so so yes I think we definitely have another podcast in us Gary I appreciate that so much <laughs> and would encourage anyone check out his work um Cursum Perficio is the book that we spoke about today just fascinating fascinating work I appreciate all you put into that and also I did want to say on the jasoncharles.net website on the Los Angeles page for this episode, you'll be able to see amazing photographs that were provided to us by Gary. And um, they really, you know, they're just beautiful depictions of the home. And I, I really appreciate all the work and the love and the research that you did to bring this woman closer to us. Thank you, Laura. This was great. I really appreciate it. It was, it was an honor. Thank you. And for jasoncharles.net, this has been Laura Craven with Los Angeles. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep. Very, very deep.